If you would, open a Bible with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6. That's where we'll begin our time of study this morning. Acts chapter 6. I want to say how much I appreciate uh, all of those who have been in part of our worship service this morning. It has stirred me up. And uh, it has been just a, a very, uh, I appreciate the thought that's gone into everything that has happened this morning. I appreciate you men for uh, the work that you've done. Just feeling very grateful this morning, thinking about, uh, I'm taking the Lord's Supper and I'm thinking, you know, somebody made this bread and set it out. I didn't do any of that, you know. And then somebody is concerned about uh, the building and the temperature in the building. All these things that I benefit from that you have done not because of any uh, sense of duty or anything like that, but because uh, out of the, the goodness of your heart. And I'm just, I'm just feeling very thankful and appreciative for all of you this morning. Uh, we want to welcome those who are visiting with us. Thank you for being here. We're always glad that you are here when you're visiting here. And we want you to know if there's something we can do to help you, some question we can answer, we'd love to engage with you about that. But thank you for being here. Acts 6 and verse 1. Acts 6 and verse 1. Now, in these days, when the t- disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We've been talking a lot this year about the kingdom. That's our theme for the year. A lot of different areas of the kingdom. But over the last couple of months, we've been talking about Satan's attacks on the kingdom. And I want to continue that for a few minutes this morning. I want to show you from the book of Acts the way Satan attacks the kingdom of God through the idea of conflict and church conflict specifically. So we have talked about how Satan attacks the church or the kingdom through persecution. And we've talked about how Satan attacks the kingdom through Corruption. Corruption is the idea of people within the church not being what they appear to be. And persecution is the idea of people outside the church attacking the church. This is instead something different. No one is wrong here. When there is a complaint about the neglect of the the Hellenistic widows, it's not as if somebody is a hypocrite. It is just that there is a conflict between disciples. So the book of Acts shows the unity and the love of the early Christians, but sometimes it seems to me that we get a little bit of an idealized picture of the New Testament church when we read the book of Acts. We read some of those pictures about, you know, there was no one among them who had any need or they had all things in common, and we say, wow, things just must have been great there, and we gloss over some of the more difficult chapters in the story of the early churches. And it seems to me that we need to step back and say this is a way Satan attacks what God is trying to do in Christ. This is a way he attacks even today. And I want to particularly say we need to know how these early churches overcame conflict among themselves because you and I are going to have conflict among ourselves. Conflict is going to come up from time to time within our group, and it can happen to us. We want to know how we can defeat it, and not allow Satan to defeat what we are doing and what God is doing through us. So let's just talk. We're going to talk about four examples in the book of Acts of how there was church conflict, and we'll briefly go over those, and then we'll, we'll see what we can draw out of that. The first is here where we're talking about the neglected widows. In verse 1 it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the implication of the text is as the number was growing, neglect happened. As numerical growth happened, it led to neglect. Which, by the way, I might just add this as an aside. We have had a lot of numerical growth in this church over the last couple of years. And it may be that one of the offshoots, one of the difficulties, side problems that comes with numerical growth is sometimes there are people who are neglected. 
And there are things that go undone that need to be done. And this is going to be a part of what we need to be extra aware of as we experience numerical growth like they did. But there is a conflict here that has some racial undertones. The Hellenistic and the Hebrews are just two groups of Jewish Christians, but some of them are Greek-speaking and seem to be more Greek culture-affiliated, that's the Hellenists, and some are more Jewish, that's the Hebrews. So what has happened up to this point is the apostles seem to have been personally handling all the money and all the benevolent cases, anybody who is in need. And that's a big deal because remember by this time the church is at least 5,000 people and there are, let's see, 12 apostles, right? So what are we going to do when there's a big problem like this? So verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, remember that's several thousand people, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they call the whole church together. They've obviously discussed it. They realize that this is too big a role for them and they need to make some decisions. They have done wrong in taking too much and now they're going to let some others do some parts of the work that are less important. So they urge the church, select seven men. I think that's because, just my opinion, it's because Christians like sevens. We've been studying this in Revelation, right? Seven just seems like a good number. You're going to pick a number? Don't pick six. Pick seven. So they say, pick seven men. They do pick seven men. Those seven men are all having Greek names. Verses six, uh, five and six there. They're all having Greek names, which appears to me to imply that we're trying to, uh, what's the word here? Throw them a bone. We're trying to give them a, a sense that, hey, we consider your problem serious and we want to solve it and we trust you. This is not about singling out the Hellenistic widows. So what happens then is a potentially explosive conflict. Just think about it. If we had a conflict in our church where maybe one racial group, maybe one age group, maybe one gender group says you are neglecting us. Think about the potential for explosion that would have. So here are apostles what they do is with humility, they say, we have a responsibility that we can't compromise on, but this we can. So here is what we want you to do. You pick out seven men, we'll give this duty to them, we'll do our duty, and the church can go forward in harmony. And it does. Verse 7, it says, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So Luke sums up the scene by saying, Things continue to go well in Jerusalem, and everything continued to multiply. But the implication of that is it didn't necessarily have to. This problem could have sidetracked what God was doing. Instead, they overcome the problem by their humility and their wisdom and by the Holy Spirit, as you see the implications of the Holy Spirit in that text. All right, let's talk about a fellowship issue. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. So in Acts 9... Uh, this is the chapter, this section of Acts talks about Saul of Tarsus, who Saul was a persecutor of the church, persecuted people in Jerusalem, went to Damascus to persecute more Christians, and on the way he sees Jesus on the road, he becomes a disciple of Jesus in Damascus. Now he goes back to Jerusalem, Acts 9 and verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
Now, we know as readers that Saul is a changed man. We've already read that. What he did in Damascus, we've read about how he began to preach about Jesus. But the disciples in Jerusalem don't know that. They're not sure. So what they say is, we don't want to accept him because we don't believe him. Do you notice that in verse 26? They did not believe that he was a disciple. So they are thinking this must be some kind of a ruse so that he can infiltrate our community and persecute us some more. Remember, the last time they saw Saul, Saul was dragging men and women into prison. So what what are we going to do? This is a fellowship issue. Fellowship meaning here who we are going to accept and who we won't accept. And those issues, fellowship issues, are always a blend of doctrinal problems and personal problems. They're emotional. There's wisdom involved. There's something to do with teaching. They are potentially explosive. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas hears the story and he believes Paul, Saul. And he takes Saul to the apostles and vouches for him. He really did see the Lord. He really did preach in Damascus. He really is a disciple. You can trust him. So verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. That is the the old Hebrew idiom that means you are accepted, you're a part of the community, just like David went in and out before the people of Israel. So we have a, a fellowship issue that could be potentially explosive. Just imagine if you're a member of the Jerusalem church, And your husband was drug off to prison by Saul. And now Saul is knocking on the door of the church saying, hey, I'm a Christian now. How are you going to feel about that? Do you see how there is an emotional part to that? There is a, I just don't agree with this. I don't like this. I'm not going to do this. They are afraid and their fear prompts a certain decision that could be explosive. Think also, remember, this is the New Testament era. You don't just say, well, if I can't get in at the Jerusalem church, I'll just go to the church down the street. There is no church down the street. This is the church. And you also, this is the New Testament era, you don't go start your own church in town. You don't do that. If Saul is not accepted by the Jerusalem church, he is illegitimate as a teacher of the message of Jesus. So what happens then? is that this fellowship issue is resolved by the apostles being willing to meet with Barnabas and Saul, by being willing to admit that maybe we shouldn't be afraid, maybe we could even take a risk in accepting Saul. So we have to make those kinds of fellowship decisions today, and this is an example that helps us not only to see the potential for conflict, but also the potential for resolution. All right, third scene. Let's talk about Peter and the Gentiles. Let's look in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. This is also a conflict that happens in the early church that also has to do with some racial issues. Now, up to this point, everybody who is a Christian is a Jew. There are no non-Jew Christians, and Jews believed that Gentiles were unclean. They're not to be eaten with. They would make you defiled. You don't go to the house with them. You don't stay with them. You don't hang out with them. Because they are unclean and they will make you unclean. And they are certainly not the kind of people you would want to go teach and baptize. And yet, all that changes in Acts 10. Acts 10 is the story of how Cornelius, who is a non-Jew, sees a vision of an angel. 
how he calls for Peter to come to his house, and how Peter has a vision about how he should eat unclean animals. Peter later realizes that the vision about animals is actually about people, not that he should eat people. The message is that he should accept people he formerly thought were unclean. Look in Acts chapter 10 and verse 28. Acts 10, 28, he said to them, you yourselves, talking about the Gentiles, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter has come to a different understanding. Where before, he would not go to see a non-Jew or eat with them. Now he is there eating with them. He's going to end up baptizing them and making them Christians. He preaches the gospel to them. Peter has undergone a major change in his beliefs. But here's the thing. Just because I go on a major change in my beliefs doesn't mean you do, does it? And it doesn't mean you do at the same time I do. And that shifting has the potential for church conflict. Turn the page to Acts 11. You see how that happens in this case. Acts 11 and verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying... You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So here you go. The nature of the criticism and the conflict is this. You went into uncircumcised men, non-Jews, and you ate with them. Notice they don't say you baptized them. They're more concerned you ate with them. Now, I think they do have an issue with the baptism. They'll talk about that later. But, but I think it shows a little bit of where their minds are at when they're saying, how could you even eat with people like this when Peter is busy making them disciples of Jesus? But what you have is a conflict, a conflict between one part of the church in Jerusalem and Peter. Peter is an apostle. In fact, you could say in many ways he was the foremost apostle. And yet here are many of the people in the, Jewish, in the Jerusalem church who are critical of Peter. There is a difference of opinion. So how do we work through this? Well, you see right here in Acts 11, Peter retells the whole story. We're not going to read all of that. But I want you to notice how when Peter gets done, how these brothers respond. Acts 11, 17. Acts 11 and verse 17. If God then, this is Peter speaking, if God then gave them the same gift, gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the other Jewish Christians, when they hear Peter's explanation, they fall silent. They understand that what they thought is different from what God is doing, and they give glory to God, and they change their minds. Verse 18, to me, is one of the most staggering verses in the whole Bible because it means these Jews who for so long had had this view about Gentiles, now immediately change. They understand, they know, and they accept it. Maybe that's because it seems to me so rare to hear people honestly admit, I was wrong, or to have people's minds changed so quickly. 
Very rarely do we see that in our time. And it seems to me even more difficult when somebody has had these prejudices for their whole lives. But that is exactly how this is resolved. This church conflict is resolved by humility and tender hearts. Hearts that will listen, respect God, and understand that God might want something that's different from what I want. And that even if I don't like it, I need to follow God when I don't like it. And that kind of spirit will lead to unity because it's full of humility. But I want to stress, that's not the end of the Gentile problem. It's going to continue to be an issue. And just because they acknowledge it here doesn't mean it goes away. So I want to talk about the last circumstance here you see in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 15. We're going to talk about uh, Gentiles and circumcision in Acts 15. Acts 15 and verse 1. Acts 15 and verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. So Judea means they came from Jerusalem. That's important because that's where the apostles were. And so anything that comes from the church in Jerusalem sounds like the apostles have taught it, which means it sounds like this comes from the Holy Spirit. So it sounds like that message now has changed. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You have to be circumcised or else. Now that's not a problem for Jews Because Jews were circumcised the eighth day after they were born. It was a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. They had no problem with that. Yeah, sure, you have to be circumcised to be saved. No issue. But it was an issue if you were a Gentile. Because if you were a Gentile, you were not circumcised. Famously so. And so not only if you wanted to be a Christian, if you were a Gentile, not only did you have to believe in Jesus, not only did you have to change your life, but now you also have to cut your body. And that becomes a part of, according to their teaching, the requirement in order to be a Christian. So, verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that's Bible talk for they had a really big fight, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they go to Jerusalem from Antioch because they want to talk to the apostles and elders Is this what the apostles teach? And is this what you are intending these men to come down here and teach to us? Verse 3. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So just so you know, verses 3 and 4 are about the first missionary journey. We've been studying this in our daily devotional readings. And those, that first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are going to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are accepting Jesus. In fact, they are more successful among the Gentiles than they are among the Jews. So now Paul is spreading the news. Listen to what God has done in all of these places where we've been. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. So Paul and Barnabas have been making Gentile converts, but here some of the Pharisees who had become Christians are saying, no, we have to be circumcised to be saved and we have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. So... What happens in Acts 15, and we're not going to go into this, just so you know, uh, we're going to cover this in coming weeks in our daily devotional, and, and we'll cover it, as you guys know, we go kind of slow there, so we'll cover it very thoroughly. But 
the, the basic idea is that the apostles and elders gather together to discuss just what do we have to say to the Gentiles? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the law of Moses? And you can see the conflict here, right? Here's Paul and Barnabas. They aggressively say, no, they don't have to be circumcised. But here are the Pharisaic Christians who are aggressively saying, yes, they do have to be circumcised. What are we going to do? That is a conflict. Well, they sit down and discuss it. And Peter speaks up and he says, you know, it was me that was sent to Cornelius' house, the first Gentile convert, and God didn't make any distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He gave us the same spirit. He gave them. So I say, why are we going to put a yoke on their neck? And then they, they let Paul and Barnabas talk. And Paul and Barnabas say, Let's let me tell you all the wonderful things God is doing through the Gentile world as we go preach the gospel. You know, God is working miracles as I preach this, and I don't say a word about them being circumcised. And then there's James, the brother of Jesus, who stands up and says, we know God wants the Gentiles because he said so in Scripture, and it seems to me best to not trouble them or make it any harder for them. And so the group decides that circumcision is not required. They write a letter to that effect. And in verse 30, I want you to see this, Acts 15 and verse 30. So they went, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So we leave this scene where there is a potential for such awful conflict with the idea of encouragement, that the brethren are encouraged, there's harmony, agreement in what they've decided. Now, I want to tell you, that's not the end of this issue. The book of Galatians continues to detail the issue that, that there are still people going around teaching this. A lot of references in the New Testament to Judaizing teachers, people who are trying to influence Christians to keep the law of Moses in addition to the laws of Christ. So I, I don't mean to suggest that this problem never ever came up again, but I do mean to suggest that this is a conflict that could have exploded the church. It could have made it into two different kinds of churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. But instead, because these men are willing to gather together and discuss the issue, to have humility, to seek God's counsel, to seek scripture, to talk through it, they come to a conclusion that brings peace and encouragement. All right, so there's your four instances. My question is, what can we learn here? And I want to suggest three things about church conflicts, and then uh, we'll be done for the morning. First, I want you to notice that church conflicts usually have both a doctrinal and a personal component. Doctrinal, I mean, there, there's something to do with our practice or our teaching, but then there's a part of it that's just about my feelings and my emotions. So when the widows are involved, there's the question of, is there a difference between Hellenistic and Hebrew widows? That's the sort of doctrinal component. But the personal component is, are you doing this on purpose? Is this deliberate? When you talk about Saul, there's the question of who do we have to accept and on what terms? That's the sort of doctrinal question. But then there's the personal question. I don't believe you. You say you're a disciple and I don't believe it. Or when you've got Cornelius and the Gentiles. Well, the, the doctrinal question is can we go in and, and be a guest of a Gentile? Can we eat with them? Can we accept them? But the personal question is when they stand up to Peter in his face and they say, you went in and did this. With the, the last one we just talked about, about circumcision, there, there's a doctrinal question. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised? But there's also a personal question, which is, am I comfortable worshiping with Gentiles who haven't been circumcised and who might eat bacon 
Am I okay with that? How do I handle that? You see, both of those combine to make church conflict particularly challenging. So in all of these issues that we've talked about this morning, the doctrinal side is a little vague. Jesus doesn't really speak to all of those questions. And so you can see how people could come to different conclusions about the doctrinal parts. But I believe that church conflicts are really damaging because of the personal side. The personal side is what gives fuel to the explosion. I understand sometimes we argue about words and we argue about teaching and stuff, but usually when things blow up, it's personal. It's emotional. It's about my feelings. Church conflicts I've observed follow that pattern. There is some doctrinal issue or some practical issue or some decision made by the elders, and that becomes the flashpoint for a whole bunch of resentment and bitterness and frustration that previously kind of simmered under the surface. And all of a sudden, with that one decision or that one teaching, everything goes to pieces. And often, we feel justified in our personal animosity towards someone else. We feel justified because they teach or do something that we think they shouldn't. So... It's not that I just say, you know, he shouldn't do that. He shouldn't say that. It is instead something where I can't stand him. And then we blame that animosity on doctrine. The problem here is that conflicts like that are really hard to resolve because they're two-pronged. You can talk about the doctrinal side all you want, but you're not going to resolve the problem if someone's feelings are hurt. But you can also talk about feelings all you want and make somebody feel better. But if you don't resolve the substance of the discussion, you won't resolve it. And very often, it's difficult to achieve both. Second thing about church conflicts. Church conflicts must be addressed. I think one of the marks of the leadership of the early Christians is shown in these stories. Do you notice that? When there's a complaint about the widows, what do they do? They gather the whole church together and say, here's what we're going to do. Here is Saul. Are we going to accept Saul or not? They say, let's meet with Saul and Barnabas and the apostles. Here is Peter. He goes in and eats with Cornelius. And the Jews come to him and say, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. They don't just complain. They bring their complaint directly to Peter. And then they're able to talk through it and come to a resolution. Or in the, the case of the circumcision question, they all gather together at the Jerusalem church so that they can discuss it and come to a solution. All of them present conflicts that are avoided because they are addressed. This is an extension of Jesus' teaching. Jesus teaches us, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Leave your gift before the altar. Go and be reconciled. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, Paul says. These conflicts are handled quickly so that resentment never can build. That's the point. So I want to say a few things about that. That might be good, practical advice for you and me. First, complaints need to be made to the people who can fix them. Complaining about something without talking to the person who can help is just complaining. In Acts 6, the reason there's a solution to the problem is because it comes to the attention of the apostles. 
So there is a difference between being a complaining person and bringing some problem to the attention of someone who can fix it. Second, if it's intended to be productive, criticism needs to be directed to the person who is being criticized. It is not enough to just criticize someone behind their back. All that's doing is sowing discord. But if I have something that I feel you need to fix, I can say that to you or I cannot say it at all. But it is not helpful if we're just going to criticize one another to each other and not to the person who needs the criticism. We have to acknowledge that if we're not willing to actually work on the problem, if we're not willing to go to those who can help, like maybe the elders or the brothers who are in charge of something, if we are not willing to do the things required to make peace, then we are a part of the problem. And in fact, we are allowing Satan to work through us to contribute to conflict. To our elders, I would say, there is a pattern here that says, if there is a problem, you need to address it and you need to go to that problem and try to find a way to make it better. Now, certainly there's wisdom and judgment involved in how and where and all the specifics of that, but the pattern is we're going to try to work on something before it grows. By the way, I would just say, this is an important principle in every relationship. It's an important principle in a marriage. It's an important principle at work. If we can learn that I don't just want to let things go if there's something serious there, if we can learn to address issues, it's going to bless those relationships. And the last thing I want to say about church conflict is that church conflicts require humility and peacemaking. See, the good news here in these passages is that conflict doesn't have to mean the end for a church. It doesn't have to mean the end of peace. It doesn't have to mean the end of the work that we're doing and that God's doing through us. We can still be unified. We can even be stronger after conflict. But humility is required. And by humility here, I mean several things. I mean a willingness to change, a willingness to accept compromises, a willingness to not demand my way, a willingness to admit, like the apostles admitted, that maybe we need help and maybe we haven't been doing it very well. I mean the humility to admit, like the apostles did, that maybe they have been wrong about somebody, like they were wrong about Saul. That's humility. It's probably a little embarrassing for them, but it was the way forward to peace. I mean the humility to admit, like the people who confronted Peter, to admit that, man, I was wrong about that. I guess me and God, we're on the different pages, and I want to get on the same page with God. I mean the humility that says we're going to come to an agreeable solution together. Humility means I may be wrong. And I have to seriously consider that. It means I don't know everything. It means I may not get my way. Others may be in charge and I may have to take a step back. But I'm willing to forgo my interests for the betterness of the group. Tied in with that is the idea of peacemaking. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. And you can really see how disciples act that out in these scenes that we've talked about. They want to find solutions to the problems. And so they work through things. There is just an enormous difference when our goal is to be right and to get our way and to win. 
than when our goal is to make peace. Have you found that in your marriages? That when you set out to say, no, I'm going to win this argument, I want, to, I want you to say, I'm right. That that creates a different tone than when you say, how can we figure this out? How can we come to a solution together? It is amazing to me what we can accomplish when we quit worrying about who's right and wrong and just be concerned about how we can create peace. It's amazing how love can grow. When we have an issue and we talk it out and we hug each other and we move on. In fact, I would say we are stronger when we do that than if the conflict hadn't happened because we know our relationship can withstand difficulty, differences. It's amazing that when we actually seek peace and we do it with a humble spirit, how many things we can work through. That's what the New Testament church shows me. Think of all these things and all these problems. We might even say, wow, there's always something going on with that Jerusalem church. But you know what? They keep working through it. And it grows stronger and stronger as a result. So those are the things I would say about church conflict, things for us to think about as we think about our work together. I think it really helps, though, to view conflict through the lens of an attack of Satan. See, if unity glorifies God, and if unity helps our witness, then division causes others to blaspheme and dishonors God. We simply must stop thinking that unity and peace and conflict, those are all things somebody else does. We have to think about our role. But if Satan can produce in me personal hurt or some kind of corrupt attitude, some kind of doctrinal compromise, if he can convince me in the wrong direction, then he can infiltrate the kingdom of God. So, God's kingdom will not be stopped. But am I going to be an obstacle to the kingdom? Would you pray with me about it? Our God and Father, we're so thankful for the words that we've studied this morning that you've left for us in your word. We're thankful for the examples of these early Christians, for the way that they pursued you and pursued peace with each other, the way they worked through their differences. Father, help us to see that our differences are like theirs, and that very often it's hard for us because we are emotional creatures. Very often it's hard for us to see things rightly. It's hard for us to admit when we're wrong. And I pray that you'll give us courage and humility so that we can pursue peace together. Father, I ask a blessing on this congregation as we work together, as we try to build love, as we try to work in unity. I ask your blessings on us in our relationships with each other that we can be at peace we can show kindness and build one another up. That when there are problems, we can work through them and move on. I pray for our elders as they lead us. pray that you'll give them wisdom. We're so thankful for them, Father, and the work that they do for us. And I pray that you'll continue to bless them, help them to make choices that are going to be for the good of all of us, and that show their respect and their desire to follow your will. Father, we ask that you will... Continue to work in our day the way you worked in the past to help us to overcome obstacles to your kingdom so that the world will know that you sent your son 
and the world will know that you're alive in us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel. We don't want to close our time together without giving you an opportunity to let us know about that so that we can help you to do what needs to be done to be right with God. Specifically, at this time, we're going to sing a song and encourage anyone here who has a need that you want to make known to this group to come to the front and to let that need be made known to us so that we can help you with it, particularly if you're someone who is not a disciple of Jesus and you're ready to turn away from your sins and to be buried with him in baptism and have your sins washed away. This time is for you. Please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.